Well, good evening. Welcome to Young Adults. My name is Jared, and I'm excited to kick off this series in Philippians. If uh, you have your phone, I'd love if you would go to the Bible app, and if you go to events, you can follow along with all of our stuff there. And I would challenge you, as we're doing this series, I would challenge you to just read through the book of Philippians and see what God has to say through the book. I'm excited about it. Um, The question I want to ask tonight is, how do you remain confident and not just like regular confidence of like, man, I'm, I'm, I trust in something that I'm good at, but like confident that you'll have joy about something. Uh, the, the book of Philippians is probably defined by two things. It kind of chops up in some, in some different ways, but he's both confident. Paul is writing this to a group of Philippian in church that he, he's saying, hey, you can have confidence in this difficult season, but you can also have joy and you can have confidence that you will have joy. I want to tell you about the most confident person I think I've, I've ever met. Um, there was a guy, uh, I don't remember his name, um, but when I was uh, after my sophomore year of college, me and three guys got in a Saturn Type S. It was a three-door Saturn, about as big as this podium. Um, and we drove to Orlando and we went to um, Disney. And it was one of the luckiest, craziest trips of my life. I lost my phone to the Hulk ride at Universal Studios in Orlando. Um, but we went to Disney for three days. and It was a great thing. Well, one of the guys that was on the trip um, had a, a dad who worked a, a job where he did helicopter maintenance. And if you don't know, Know for every hour or every minute that um, a helicopter's in the air, it takes three times that amount of maintenance. So uh, what, what his company primarily did is they did two things. They would scoop up big things of water and dump it on forest fires, or they would uh, pick up air conditioning units and put them on top of skyscrapers. That's like the only thing his company did. And uh, we were in Orlando and he's texting his dad and he's like, guys, this is crazy. My dad's doing a job in Orlando. And we're like, oh, that's wild. And he was like, I'd love to see him if we can. It was like, yeah, sure, we'll figure it out. And finally we find a day where we're not doing anything. And we we have a day that we're like gonna go see him. And he's texting our friend and he's like, hey, if you can make it to this airport within this time frame, we can take you up in the helicopter. And we're like, yeah, who doesn't want a helicopter ride over Orlando? So we show up to this airport. We go in this like back, you know, alleyway type situation, not the regular, like you just drive up to the airport, go through security. It's like backwoods, you know, type of airport situation. So we, we do that. Uh, we, we show up, and what they're doing is, is they have this helicopter, and this helicopter has two um, regular size wheels on each side in kind of an A-frame that come out. It doesn't land like a normal helicopter. It has two wheels, so it sits on it on its regular kind of pads or whatever they are, and then it has two wheels. And this pilot is getting in, turning on the, the, the helicopter. He's taking it up about 30 feet, and, and they're, they're looking at it and balancing it, thing, and they take it back down, and then these two or three mechanics are working on making sure the blades are evenly distributed with their weight. So it's me and three buddies sitting on this airfield um, just waiting to go up because they they have to fix all this and then they're going to do their test run around the city before they go and get their stuff done and um, we're just waiting and and it's like the helicopter pilot is just waiting too and we're talking to him and he's, we're asking him like, hey, how good do you have to be? Do you just get it up in the air and the people like drag the, you know, the the air conditioning unit where it needs to be and, and, you know, bolted in and he's like, no, I can drop it on the bolts. And we're like, okay, Mr. Mr. Confidence. He's like, I can drop, if you show me where the bolts are, if they paint them yellow for me, I can drop that air conditioning unit right where it needs to go. And we're like, yeah, right, dude. Like three, like me and my three buddies are, are idiots. We don't know anything about helicopters. And we're like, no, you can't. 
And he starts doing these little tests every time he goes up in the air and, and he would land the plane and he, he, would, he would tell us, hey, okay, this time I'm gonna put two chocks out, two things to stop the wheel and I'm gonna put it exactly back down where it needs to go back in the chocks, not gonna move the chocks. And we're like, okay, that's, you know, that's pretty cool. So he takes it up, he does a spin, he puts it back down right in the chocks. We're like, okay, that's, that's pretty impressive. And he does something else. He puts it like on the edge of the field and he's like, oh, I'm gonna go up this and do that. We're like, okay, that's whatever. And finally, we're giving him enough, enough like, like junk about like, dude, you're not, you're not as good as you say you are. He goes, hey, stand at the edge of that field and turn your back to me. And we're like, what is gonna happen? So me and three other guys stand like this at the edge of a field and one by one, he takes the tire that is connected to the airplane and he taps us on the back of the head one by one. And he lands the plane and he goes, do you think I'm as good as I say I am? And we're like, absolutely. And he said, never tell the FAA. We said, deal. Because he said he could lose his license. But he was like the most confident person I'd ever met. And I was just like, okay, you said that you're good, you're good. I trust to go up in your helicopter now. And we got to do a flight around downtown Orlando and they basically just said, sit in the side. It didn't have like a side door. You just sit and you, they didn't tell you, but you had to hang on to something and hope you don't fall out. It was an awesome, awesome experience. Um, but confidence is one of those things where like, if you're good at it, you're like, oh man, I can be confident in this. I know I've done this before. I don't get stressed out about this anymore. Like I remember talking to Morgan who helped lead worship a couple weeks ago and she was singing and I said, do you get nervous? And she said, no, and I, in this context, I don't get nervous. And she's done some singing in the past. And for some of you, you'd think about, man, if you had to stand up here and sing a song, you'd be miserable. You would, you would throw up, leave, you'd do whatever it took to not have to do that. Um, but it, it has to do with our capacity, with our ability, with our confidence, right? You have confidence about something that you trust that you're good at. And, and I think joy is one of those things that's like, okay, how, do you, how can you be confident that you'll have joy? Because there's so many life situations, there's so many circumstances, there's so many different things that happen that you're like, how, I, 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 can't, I can't be confident, I can't know for a fact that I'll have joy about random things in life. Like joy, I think we sometimes connect with happiness and it's like, it's, it goes up and down, it, it, ebbs and flows, it sways, it changes, it changes with different seasons, it changes with how much money I'm making or how good my friends are or all these things. And as you're thinking about the things that are, are pulling you back from knowing that you can be confident in a season and have joy, you're starting to think through all the reasons that you won't have joy in a season. And maybe you're in the middle of the semester and midterms just hit and you're like, there's some reasons I can show you that are letters that are a lot closer to F than A that why I don't have joy and why I have no confidence. Or, or, or maybe you're sitting here and you're like, man, I, I just got out of a relationship and it's hard to have joy about something. It's hard to be confident in something. Maybe you have stuff in your past that was really, really difficult and you're like, I, I have trouble trusting people. I have trouble knowing that this situation will be safe for me, that I'll be okay. Sorry. And you start to struggle with that. You start to struggle with the thought of confidence and joy being together. I, I looked up some stats on happiness and what happens is happiness over time, basically it peaks at 18 and then it forms a big smiley face. As you go a lot longer, you get to 20 and it dips. You get to 25 and it dips. You get to 30 and it dips. You get to 35 and it dips. You get to 45 and it dips. You get basically all the way till your late 40s, 
and it's at its lowest. It, you, you have the lowest part of the smiley face, and then it goes back up, this you does, where you're your happiest towards the end of your life. And, and I look at that, and I think about what, who I was getting ready to talk to tonight, and I was so sad, because I was like, I don't wanna go tell a bunch of people it's gonna get worse from here on out. That's awful. How do we know that we can have joy? How do we look at Paul's situation and and Paul talking to these people in Philippi, this church, and saying, you can have joy, you can be confident. Regardless of the situation that's happening around you, you can have joy, you can have peace, you can be confident in those things. So when we get ready to talk about Philippi, I wanna give a short introduction to what the church in Philippi was. The church in Philippi was strongly ingrained and rooted in Roman culture. I mean, this would have been a place that like old uh, retired soldiers would have gone to retire, that they would have like gone through the military, known the culture well, and retired there. There there were people that were enriched in commerce. It was like the way to Macedonia. It was kind of this beginning of the funnel before you get to bigger parts of Eastern uh, Europe. And and, and it's like they were such an important place. But I think what happened in Philippi is similar to what happened here where people would look at the Christian faith and go, why would you ever live that way? We have more figured out. It's better this way. It's better our way. You have more peace, you have more joy, you have more happiness. But I think ultimately what we find out is that that's not the way to happiness. In Philippi, it's a a cool thing because what you see this book start with, I'm gonna read the first um, the first three um, verses, or the first five verses actually. Philippians 1, one through five. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. He's just giving this blanket, welcome. I wanna talk to the church. I wanna say, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're with us. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is kind of his boilerplate like welcome and you read other other books, the the thing that's of Paul and it's pretty similar to this, but the thing that's different about this letter from Paul is that like you read through the introduction and it's like full of this affection that he has for them. He he says things like, man, I'm just just so joy filled in writing you. I thank the Lord, like what he says here, I thank the Lord every time I think about you. I pray to God for you and I'm thankful for you. He doesn't say, I'll pray for you and then, My alarm's going off. I gotta pray for the church in Philippi. He's thankful. He's glad to do it. He's happy to make that happen. Why? Because he knows the people well. He's grateful for them. In other books, you see him, he's directing and guiding, and he's he's kind of putting some things down and saying, hey, you can't do life this way anymore. You need to do it this way. In, 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 In this book, he's writing and saying, I just wanna encourage you. I want you to have joy and confidence. He had these three pieces of affection and purpose because they helped support him in his missionary journeys. All the things were going on around them, and you read about it later in chapter four, verse 18, that they're sending people to him and saying, hey, keep the mission work going, giving him money, giving him help, giving him support, giving him encouragement, and giving him prayers. But the crazy thing that we're not gonna cover it tonight, but in verse seven, what we find out is they haven't just been showing up to his house and giving him these things. They're showing up to a prison cell and giving him rations and money and encouragement. So Paul writes this book about confidence and joy and he writes it from the, from the place of behind prison bars. And we have that context. 
But the, the, the thing I want to start with tonight before we really dive in is he says, I thank God every time I remember you. And that's important thought because we, we have a different look at, at this book than we do other books because Paul made a visit to Philippi in, in Acts 16, and we get to see how the church was formed. What we see uh, the church was formed is Paul is going around on his mission journeys and he gets to Philippi. And what he, his kind of play was is he'd go to the synagogue and there was no synagogue in Philippi. It was not a Jewish or, or Jewish accommodating city. So they, they went and they, they didn't find a synagogue. So he goes around and he's like, okay, the place that people normally go whenever there's no synagogue, but they want to kind of learn and, and be with each other is down by the river. So he goes to the river and, and there's these people there that are having this basically this, this Bible study. They're wanting to know more about God, and it says that they were worshipers of God, but it did not say that they were followers of God. So it says that he goes and he preaches to them, and this lady named Lydia, it says that the Lord opened up her heart to what Paul said, and she accepted Christ and started following him. And Lydia was this person who was probably of Asian descent, and she was a business person. She was logical. She was seeking after God. That's why she would have been down by the river. That's why she would have been at that spot. That's why she would be there wanting to learn, wanting to grow. It says she was a worshiper of God, but it did not say that she was a follower. She was wanting to learn. She was wanting to grow. She was a seeker. She wanted to know more, but she didn't have Jesus yet. And then Paul's going around, and he's trying to do this ministry and there's this, this girl who, it, it kind of describes her, she has this divination or this, this, this demon that, that's overcome her. And she had this weird situation where she had some people that were her owners as she was a slave. And they, they knew that she could tell the future because of this divination that was happening to her. So they could kind of point her in a direction and say, hey, tell them that person's future and she could do it. And then they would make the money from profiting from owning her. So she was deeply deeply troubled. She, I mean, she was both dealing with this thing that was happening inside of her and someone owning her and exploiting her. I mean, you think about what she's gone through and she's probably living in some dark places. She's probably gone through some difficult things. And she sees Paul and his team and she, they're going around trying to minister to people and she's screaming at the top of her lungs, these men are ministers of the Most High God. And they're, it, they're like, okay, th thanks. And, and it's, it's a weird thing because it's accurate. It, it's true. They are ministers of the Most High God. But what she's doing is not a helpful thing. She's doing it in a way that is harming their ministry. So Paul turns around after a couple of days and says, hey, spirit, be gone out of her. And the spirit left her, and she was freed of that. And she's one of the members of the early church, they believe. But the fallout from that is not as easy. The fallout from her converting, the fallout from her not having this divination is that her owners came to her and she couldn't do what she could do before and, then, and made them money. So they, they looked around and said, who did this? And she pointed to Paul and they said, okay, we're going to pull you out, get you into the marketplace. We're going to get the other people that make money around and say, what you've done is harmful to us. So what they did is they threw him in jail and they beat him with rods. I mean, essentially canes, long, sturdy sticks that they would have beat him and his team with. And he shows up in jail, and he didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know what, what, how he was going to get out. But here he is trying to do a right thing. He has a good intention, and kind of the second thing that happens is this really negative impact to him and his ministry. He gets thrown in jail. 
So him and his boy Silas are in jail, and it says that they push them to the inner, inner jail, which would have been a worse spot, and they put them in this stockade, which would have been this thing that would have held their legs up off the ground, but not had a place for them to sit. So it would have crossed their legs over and held them in a stockade so that their legs would have fallen asleep or cramped, and I'm sure it would have been extremely uncomfortable. And him and Silas are in there, and what it says is that they were singing songs and worshiping God. And they're doing that, in the, and in Acts 16, one of the coolest things that it says is they're singing songs and praying to God, and it says all of the people who are around listened. And that night, at midnight, an earthquake happened, and it rocked all the doors off of all of the prison cells. And the jailer came in who had one role, he had one job, and it's to make sure all of the prisoners stayed in the prison. And he comes in and he calls for lights and he sees all the prison doors on the ground and he starts to realize what his consequence is gonna be for not fulfilling his role. And he realizes, I'm gonna take my own life before the Roman government does because it'll be easier if I do it. So he starts to pull his sword out and he starts to lay it on the ground in a way that he can fall on it and impale himself and kill himself. And Paul comes out and says, hey, 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 we're all here. Everybody's here. No one's left. You're good. And the jailer looks at him and says, well, why? And the jailer turns to him and says, you, you've chosen to stay in jail. I've been listening to you singing songs and worshiping and praying. How can I follow your God? And Paul tells him, you believe that Jesus is Lord. You let him sit on the throne of your heart. And this was the beginning of the church at Philippi. That's what we know. This was the easternmost church, or the, sorry, the westernmost church in Eastern Europe. This, this is probably one of the first churches in Europe. And, and I, I was reading about this, and there would have, from what I understand, there was an old Jewish song that would have been kind of a prayer that they have thanking God that they weren't a woman, a slave, or a foreigner. And what does God do with the first church in Eastern Europe, he makes it out of a woman, a slave, and a foreigner. And this is who Paul's writing to, people that were surrounded by these deep Roman roots that said you don't need to live this way. And he says you can have hope, you can have faith. And this is where he gets to verse six, and this is where we're gonna talk mostly tonight. He says, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's confident in this. Um, I have three points tonight. They're, they're God begins a good work in you, God completes his good work in you, and God carries his good work in you. The first one is God completes, sorry, God begins his good work in you. Um, as I was looking at this, I, I just had to look at the sentence that Paul writes here, and he says, I'm confident in this. I know he's writing this from a prison cell, and he's saying, I can be confident in this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on and complete it. He began it. He, he's going to get this started for you. And Paul would go on to write other things like in Ephesians and Colossians where there's both a picture in both of those of you were dead in your trespasses. He says it in Ephesians 2. But he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. The, the thing that I'm looking at this and trying to figure out what is Paul saying, he's saying that God is the author and the beginner of your faith. In Hebrews, he says something similar. In Hebrews 12, he says, God is the founder and the perfecter of your faith. Paul will later go on to say that God gives you faith as a gift. The, the faith that you have to trust him, the faith that you have to believe in him so that your soul can be saved is a gift from God. That what we know is that in Romans 6, 23, it says the wages of sin is death. What we get for what we do wrong is death. And he's not just saying death where your heart's not beating anymore and your blood stops moving through your system. It's a total in complete spiritual separation from God. Not just a separation from your body, it's a separation from God. But it says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That from the very beginning of this, he's saying, hey, think about all of your stories. You guys know Lydia, you guys know the jailer, you guys know the slave girl. Do you know what started that change in them? It wasn't them, it was God. And they would have had this spectrum to look at, whether it's Lydia or the, these other people where they're like, I mean, Lydia was close. Lydia had a lot figured out. Lydia was a worshiper, but she didn't have Jesus. This slave girl had the testimony. Like she had, she had that rough testimony that you're like, man, people are gonna get saved when they hear her test, but she didn't have Jesus. The jailer was just living life until everything crumbled underneath him until Jesus. That Jesus is the beginner of our faith. He starts it. There's nothing that we can do to, 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 to upcharge it, to, to get it going on our own, to jumpstart it. It's Jesus. What I love about Ephesians and then in Colossians 2 is that it talks about how we were dead in our sin. There's nothing that you can do if something is dead to kind of poke it, to get it back alive again. There's just not. I remember one of the first times I saw roadkill with my sons and they were like, dad, there's a squirrel. And I was like, it was a squirrel because it's not anything anymore because it's dead. I don't know what happens to it after this, but it's not going to get up. It's not going to fix things itself. It's dead. It's gone. It's gone. And when we think through this, this is our salvation. This is our positional relationship with God where he says you had a debt that you couldn't pay. There's an old parable where Jesus is telling his disciples, he's like, listen, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like a guy who owed billions of dollars more than he could ever pay back and he goes to the person who he owes his debt to and he says, listen, I can't do it. I'll never be able to pay it back. And the person who's owed the money says, go, you're forgiven your debt. This is what happens when Jesus takes on our sin on the cross where we should have been, where you and I deserve to take on all of that in eternity in hell, and he says, no, 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 no. I'll do it for you. I'll stand on that cross. I'll die. I'll take on the debt. So that positionally, we can have no debt when it comes to God. God begins the good work in us. 
The second thing is that God completes his good work in you. This is the last thing that he referenced it, but I wanted to, to, to shape this in a way where it was the easiest to understand first and the most difficult, confusing at the end so that we could spend more time on it. Because I think a lot of us in the Bible Belt, in Christianity, in, in Springfield, Missouri, where there's a church on every corner, we understand that Jesus died for my sin. When you think about Jesus, that's the phrase that comes after that. Jesus died for my sin. But what does that mean? I think we have to know that Jesus completes this work. That if you're in Christ, if you're following Jesus, when you die physically on this earth, you will be in heaven with God. And that's a wild thought. But I also think we, we kind of understand it. One of my favorite verses in, is in um, Revelation 21, three through five. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is where John is seeing the vision of Revelation and he sees God coming and making everything right. He says he will dwell with him and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. For he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. This is the hope that we hang on to in Christ. This is John 3.16, that when we understand that we, we don't get to perish the death that we deserve, we get life eternal with God. That he begins it, he starts it, he initiated our salvation, Jesus on the cross coming and dying for us, God becoming flesh, so that we could have relationship with him. But we also understand that when our life ends, we'll be with him in eternity in heaven. And I hope that that's a part of what we get to see. I hope that's a part of the way that you view the world of, man, one day, all this difficulty will be gone. All the pain in this world will be gone. All the cancer, all the difficulty is gone. So this life is gonna be different because this is as bad as it gets because we get eternity with God, worshiping him. The, the term for this that's used by theologians is glorification. We will be fully glorified, we will be with God. It says later on that, that we will have new bodies with God. And, and part of this is just like, we, you, you kinda have to sit in that and understand it to go, God, that's gonna be so good, and I'm so thankful, and I'm so hopeful for that moment. And, and the third point I think is where it starts to get a little bit like, it's hard for me to reason in Bible Belt, Springfield, Missouri. It's hard for me to reason having grown up in church. I understood the salvation part. I even a little bit understand the eternity with him part. I don't get all the things about it, but I, I'm hopeful towards it. So what's the middle part? And I wanna read verse five again. He says, because, sorry, verse six again, because I'm confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. So my third point is this, that God carries his good work in you. God carries his good work in you. I think as believers, a lot of times, we can go, okay, God saved my soul, that's my salvation. When I get to heaven, I'll be glorified and things will be good with him. But while I'm on earth, it's kinda up to me. While I'm on earth, it depends on how good I can be, it depends on what I can get done for God, it depends how, if I can kinda make things work. I know God saved my soul, I know I'll be good in heaven, but what does this life look like right now? Because I think this is where the struggle comes in. This is where we start to not be confident. 
This is where we start to struggle with joy. This is where we start to go, God, I don't understand how this difficult thing could happen. And, and, and Paul's writing all these things from a prison cell to a group of people who would have struggled, a group of people who would have had a hard time. And he says, listen, God will carry you through it. What does that mean? The way that Paul writes all of this and the way that I've tried to shape my points is that so that we understand that in my points, when what we see from what Paul writes is that God is the subject of the sentence. God begins, God completes, God carries. You and I are not the subject of the sentence. And what I read here is that God will carry us through to the day of completion. That we hold on to the hope and the, 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 the joy that will come when we know that we'll be together with him forever. But we also know that we don't just hang on to that and then this life is just as good as I can make it. We have the opportunity to glorify God here on earth. We have the opportunity to show people here on earth that don't know God how good God is. We have the opportunity by reading God's word and knowing what it says and doing what it says because we want to honor God with our lives, because we love him, that we get to honor him, glorify him, show the world that following him is worth it and reflect his goodness to the rest of the world. We have that opportunity. Ephesians 4, 21 through 24 says this. It says, assuming that you heard about him, and you were taught him as the truth is in Jesus. He's talking about assuming that you know Jesus and that's the way that you've been walking. To put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, and it's corrupt and through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And you're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to come to terms. Is it God carrying me or is it me taking off and putting on? And, and I think it's, it's a place where... It's a humility aspect. It's a surrender piece. How do you grow? How do you change? How do you become new? How do you do what Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about of renewing your mind? It's by showing up every morning and saying, God, I can't and you can. God, I need you to shape me. God, I'm unable. God, I need you if I'm gonna change. I need you to make me new. I need you to carry me today. Sometimes I can even have pride in the fact that, like, I read my Bible pretty much every day, most days. I pray sometimes, a lot. I, I work at a church, so, like, God's moving me up the rungs of the ladder, and I'm like, God, I'm doing pretty good. And I can have pride in that. But what I'm not doing in those instances is saying, God, I, I can't do this on my own. God, I need you to carry me. And what happens is it may not be a day, it may not be two days, but it might be a season of time where I've done it on my own long enough and God lets me run to the end of my rope and say, are you tired yet? Have you run out of joy yet? Filled up with peace? I love the way that Paul wrote Galatians 5 when he talks about the fruits of the Spirit because the fruits of the Spirit happen when the Spirit indwells in us, when we're walking with the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's not just 
It, it is including, but it's not just, okay, God, I want you to handle my anger issue, so I'm going to walk in the, in, with the Spirit. It's, God, I want to honor you. So as I see people, as I look around and see the people around me, as I view my job, as I consider choices, as I consider the relationships I can have, I want to walk by the Spirit, step by step, and honor God. And I want to propose something to you all. I want to propose that God honors small obediences. God honors small obediences. Um, I took my car to the shop last uh, Monday, a week ago yesterday, because it was making, and had been for probably like four months, like it had been making this like terrible whining noise. Like it sounded like something was going to rip off a belt and it was rough sounding, okay? And it did it sometimes, but not all the time. If I drove it for a little bit longer, it would do it. And at the end of like me kind of being done with it, I realized it was doing it like when I would rev the engine up, it would whine a little bit more. And um, then I got really concerned because I drove for a while and it was like making the noise all the time. And it was making the noise when I turned the, the, the wheel. And I was like, okay, I probably need to take this somewhere. I bit the bullet and took it somewhere. I took it there Monday. And they said, hey, we, we figured out what it is. I figured out what's wrong. It's your power steering fluid is getting air in it. And they said, what, what's gone wrong in it is it's gotten air in it through, through a broken O-ring and air's getting in it and that air's running through your system and it's making this whining noise. And, and I always like to ask the question, like what, what would happen if I didn't fix this? And like, well, you'd be okay for a while and then your power steering would go out and a lot of times, I don't know if you've ever tried to drive your car when the power steering's not working, it's really difficult to turn the wheel, especially if you're at a stop or if you're moving fast, like it's pretty difficult to turn the wheel. So I'm like, okay, so if the power steering just gave out, like going down the highway, may not be able to make a turn, may not be able to get off the highway, might end up dead. Okay, we'll probably get this fixed. And then I started like thinking about it. He said it was an O-ring. And if you don't know what an O-ring is, it's like a little, it's almost like a rubber ring that people wear. I put it on my thumb so you can kind of see it a little bit better. Um, it's a tiny rubber ring um, that sits between two hoses uh, where one hose connects to another. And what it does is it protects that seal um, and makes sure that at the joint nothing gets through because this gets compressed and gets wider and makes sure that nothing gets through. Well, that broke and it was making a lot of bad things happen. Um, I bought this at Menards today for 79 cents. Um, the, the, the Honda markup is 4.95. okay? So I'm getting hosed there a little bit. Um, but this little thing was going to break things on my vehicle. And there's things, there's probably 100 or 1,000 things on your car that cost less than a dollar or two, but they're important to your car working. And I'm grateful for it. I'm glad I have a new one now. And I don't know what would have happened if I didn't have it. And I think about sometimes our relationship to obedience. Our relationship to obedience is, God, I'll do anything. We sing that song, Available, God, here I am, here I am, I'm available. And then God says, hey, can you give me something little? Can you be obedient with something really small? And we're like, is anybody going to miss it? Is anybody going to see it? Is it really that important? I don't see the end game with this. 79 cents, God. And we diminish small obediences because we don't see the end game. 
Can I tell you, I'm thankful for small obediences. There's times in my life that I'm thankful that someone walked by the Spirit and saw me in a moment of vulnerability or insecurity or sadness and spoke a word of encouragement to me. That's a small obedience. You know what I'll be eternally grateful for? My mom was not from a believing family. She said they probably went to church a couple times a year, Christmas and Easter only, the CEOs. And when she was 16, I've probably told this story a hundred times, but I can't get over it, that when she was 16, there was a family down the street that invited her five-year-old little brother to a VBS. And on Thursday night, a family night, her and her sister and her mom came and she heard the gospel for the first time and she accepted Christ and our family's never been the same. She doesn't know, she doesn't remember the name of the girl who invited her. She doesn't remember the name of the church or the denomination. She doesn't remember the pastor that helped lead her to Christ. She can't tell you who tithed in that church. She can't tell you who helped cook the hot dogs for the VBS. She can't tell you the name of the little girl who invited her brother and then the older girl that invited her. But it's a small piece of obedience that I'll eternally be grateful for. And one day I'll get to heaven and I'll be able to see this person and say, thank you. My family's not the same because of your obedience. Thank you. Will you be obedient in a small thing? And when God asks you, trust that he's carrying you. There's one more verse I wanna, I wanna bring up and it's Isaiah 64, eight. It says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter and we are all the work of your hand. And I think about this and I think about the, what Paul walked through here where he said, hey, he's the, he's the, he's the beginning, beginning. He started your faith. He'll complete your faith and he'll carry you through your faith. I think sometimes we're like, God, you can have me. Now I'm gonna go live however I want. And I think about clay in, in the hands of someone who's good with it. And I think about, um, I, I took a pottery class when I was at community college. And the guy who taught the class sold pots on the side and sold artwork on the side and did all this incredible stuff. And um, he could do these things with clay. And, and I have a piece of clay and it's a silly, silly thing. Um, but he started us off doing things and we, none of, no one in the class was good but he would have a piece of clay and he would say, okay, today we're gonna do this type of project. We're gonna make something out of a slab and we would make these, these you know, square slabs and then we'd put them together and make a box that I gave to my mom that she threw away a couple of years later, okay? Nothing in that class I don't think is still existing today. I don't think it's sitting in, um, in any galleries anywhere. Um, but when the person who was teaching that class would grab the clay and would stretch it. And I remember he would make um, the, the, these pots and he would, he would make the handles and he would get the clay a little wet and he would get his hand wet and he would stretch the handle of the pot. And it was something I was like, man, I, could, I don't think I could ever do that. But when you see it finished, you don't go, oh man, that clay is incredible. 
that clay is something special because that clay in my hand did nothing good. It didn't do anything of value. It didn't do anything remarkable. It didn't do anything that lasted 10 years after the class is gone. But in the hands of the master, in the hands of the potter, that clay can do something incredible. Why? Because he sees it. He begins it, he carries it through, and he finishes it. And you look at sometimes your life and you look at it and you're like, this doesn't look how I wanted it to look. It doesn't look how I thought it would at 20. It doesn't look how I thought it would at 25. It doesn't look how I thought it would at 30. It doesn't look how I thought it would at 34. And now I'm starting to wonder, God, do you know what you're doing? And what happens a lot of the times we say, God, I'm all yours. You have everything. Actually, God, this is what you can have and everything else is gonna stay right back here. You can change this. You can make this into whatever you want. The rest of my life is gonna be right here. And we miss out on what the master can do with our lives. And I don't wanna get to heaven and have God show me something and say, you were clay in my hand. I had this life for you. You didn't give me anything to work with. Will you give God everything? Let him shape you. Let him mold you. Let him change you. Let him carry you. Will you bow your heads?